Hi, and welcome to the Post Post Podcast, where I talk to creative minds about creative professional journeys. I'm your host, David Gidali, and this is the second episode. My guest today is Ethan Shaftel. Ethan is a unique filmmaker who, on top of directing music videos, commercials, video installations, and an indie feature, he's also breaking narrative grounds. He's creating virtual reality content. His first VR short, Extravaganza, starring Paul Scheer and John Gemberling, was premiered at Tribeca and is available on the Transport VR content platform. He had since been creating VR content for Red Bull and shows like The Walking Dead and 13 Reasons Why. I've met him a few years back and he instantly became a role model. He's articulate, organized, and perceptive. He seems to always be a man with a plan. His ability and persistence to follow through is mind-blowing. Sometimes I, I, I see him like teach himself a new discipline or a new software just to get uh, through a hoop or, or an obstacle in his way. And uh, it's almost uncanny to see how kind of capable and uh, potent he is in, in getting things done. And his participants in this episode was uh, equally professional. He had a lot of useful insights and advice that I think are relevant to anyone who embarks in a personal creative journey. Um, his can-do attitude is really addictive and can definitely be kind of felt throughout the episode and, and in his kind of passion towards his craft. And I'm pretty sure I'll be listening to this episode again from time to time when I'm working on projects of my, my own. Um, and that's it. The first episode was released last week. And it looks like I'll be releasing at least five more episodes on a weekly basis. So if you want to get notified when a new episode is up, you can follow up on Facebook and Twitter, SoundCloud, and also on Apple Podcasts now. And uh, with this, I give you episode two of the Post Post Podcast. Ethan. Hi, David. How's it going? It's going great, and I'm very, very happy that you could, uh, that you lended me an hour of your time to uh, absolutely talk about, um, about you. And <laughs> you know, I'll lend you even more time if it's to talk about me. Well, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> I can't promise you it's going to be all about you, but we'll try our best. Okay, then clock's ticking. <laughs> it's, oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, no, I'm happy to be here and chat with you. I always enjoy our conversation, so might as well record one. Maybe we'll record all of them from now on. Right. Just, uh, we'll, like, we want to meet. Wait a second. I got to make get get my equipment ready. My audio equipment. Your microphone's hid. Okay. Um, all right. So um, start. Like, how would you uh, describe yourself? Like, and kind of briefly, if someone was like. Who are you, Ethan Shaftel? What are you all about? Um, I am a filmmaker. I would describe myself. I'm a, um, I'm a filmmaker. I'm a storyteller. I'm a maker of stuff. Uh, and, you know, that's basically what I've been since I was, you know, a teenager or a preteen. Um, trying to tell stories and use technology and um, do things that interest me. I'm trying to stay independent at the same time. That is a high aspiration, uh, if I may say so. Like... Uh, yeah, yeah. 
I think, I mean, I was thinking a little bit about, you know, what we were going to talk about and thinking about my career uh, and what I'm up to now. And I think, you know, I heard somebody say once about how, like, being a freelancer, it actually might have been about being a writer, um, is like having homework, you know, for the rest of your life, that feeling that you had in school. And it's a feeling that potentially ends for some people, depending on the, the way you do your work and the way that you... Uh, your career unfolds. But if you're, if you're primarily a freelancer, if you're, you know, owning your own business or, uh, working for a lot of different clients, it's that feeling of, you know, Oh, I have homework all the time. Anything I might want to do for fun. Uh, there's always something sort of also looming over your shoulder. Well, I could be working on that project or if it's not working on that project, I could be looking ahead to the next client and how to get the next project. Um, and it's sort of a both wonderful and horrible feeling. Uh, and I think everybody has it from when they're a student. Um, and some of us have it for our entire lives. But, you know, I like it. It's funny because I was just thinking about it. How, what I like about being a freelancer is that I don't need to worry about homework because I don't have anyone, you know, like a boss telling me, you know, today I have to do this and you have to hand this over by, you know, 5 p.m. or, you know, or else you're staying longer and stuff like that. And I see what you're saying, but I feel like, when I am in a situation where, um, you know, that kind of, you know, that question or that burning thing was like, what am I not doing right now that I could be doing to like, you know, right. move and, and, and it, it, ha it's something that excites me every time, you know, like, because I choose to do things that I, uh, that I'm passionate about that, that I'm, um, um, that challenge me. And I look for that because I love it, you know, because it's something that I, I would do regardless of, you know, having a teacher tell me to or sure. or not. And I and um, and I think you are, too, like, you know, know knowing you, I, I can see from projects, you always choose projects that are challenging to you that that offer the opportunity to open up new uh, uh, new realms of exploration and, you know, technical kind of research and, and development on your end and and. So I wonder if that's if if I were talking about the same thing, just calling it one you right. know, you're calling it homework and I call it the op the opposite of homework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean I think we're we're coming at it somewhat in a optimistic versus pessimistic way. You know, in some ways, um we are talking about the same thing, of course. I mean that's why it's worth doing. That's why the the kind of um stress of not having the um the framework of a boss in the same way, like clients are different from bosses, you know, yeah. and, um, that framework is comforting and it's helpful and it's, you know, serves a purpose. Um, but when you don't have it, you get both freedom, but there's also uh, a responsibility. And I'm certainly not denigrating anyone who works at a large organization, for instance, because, you still have to be entrepreneurial. You still have to be self-motivated uh, and be political and be thinking about, okay, how am I going to get this to the next step of my career? Who do I need to be talking to or what things do I need to be doing that I'm not assigned? So I think that's a mindset that you take into many different types of jobs. But the bottom line is if, if, your, if my next project is dependent on um, me creating something speculatively, and then using it to sell my skills. And that happens not just once, not just once at the beginning of your career. It happens again and again and again as, you know, the projects I want to do change or the opportunities change. 
then um, it's just that then there's no choice but doing that in order to find that next project or, or to have any success. Um, so there's a very real stress there, of course. Uh, but like you say, you get to choose those things yourself. And that's, that's, yeah. that's why it's worth it. Exactly. And if something, you know, if, well, I guess you're talking about personal projects as opposed to uh, client working with clients. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, you know, and I'll, I'll give you some, you know, history of what my career has been sort of through the lens of how many times I've been doing something, thought to myself, I want to be doing something slightly different. How do I get there? And usually it's by spending time that you're not getting paid for, that no one is interested in you. No one's waiting for the result of either that test or that research or that speculative project. Uh, No one out there cares. And if you don't do it, also nobody cares. But if you do it, it opens up some doors and right. that I feel like my whole, you know, career from, um, from college on, or, you know, even in, even at university that those kinds of projects, um, have, when I look back are the sort of archipelago of my interests. And it's meant that I've done a lot of different, um, a lot of different things and changed direction a lot of different times. Gotcha. Um, so I started, you know, my first job out of college, so- Sorry. <laughs> There's a rabbit in here. There's a rabbit and it's starting to eat some <laughs> cardboard. Hold on. Yeah, I think, I mean, I first became interested in film and storytelling. I mean, I used to write stories and things when I was in grade school. So I've always loved to write. You wrote um, them like what? In your notebook for or for? Yeah, I would just write the longhand stories on notebook paper, um, you know, that were trying to be like books I like to read. I mean, I've always loved to read so yeah. they were uh, all my favorite stuff to read were either fantasy dragons and wizards. So I wrote like a fantasy epic called the Four Medallions of Wayleth. I still Four Medallions of Wayleth. Yeah, I mean, I only got like a chapter into it, but I was really excited. I had to map, you know, like fantasy books. I really loved mysteries, so I wrote um, a whole uh, series of stories about a uh, detective. And but the, the thing is, the detective was in France. Oh, so I don't speak any French. I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have any like knowledge of France, but I could look things up and I had a French dictionary. Um, so I would look, you know, occasionally, cause I was reading a lot of like mystery stories that had like little bits of French in, or right. like, you know, like, uh, street names and things like that. So I would look up French words and call like the street, like old sausage street, but in French. <laughs> uh, so it's funny. Like what would you say it's, because it sounds very familiar to me, knowing you, and and very non surprising that you would choose something, you know, go, to go beyond your realm of what you know in order to create something original, even though you could just do it based on things you already know. But you sure. you would obviously like force yourself outside of your comfort zone and and try to write something in a different language. That's a very uh, <laughs> positive spin on uh, what I was doing. But yeah, I mean, I think. I've definitely, I definitely didn't want to write, you know, stories about a fourth grader in Kansas. Like I definitely wanted it to be (laughs) James Bond or a hobbit, you know, like something cool, a pirate, right? Astronaut, you know, so whatever I was doing, it's always been sort of aspirational, you know, my, (laughs) uh, potentially aspirational though. I'm never going to be a hobbit. Maybe I could be an astronaut. Um, 
but I, but I do remember, so I, I love to write and I love storytelling, but I was, you know, fortunate to live in a family where my mom had, you know, an old high eight video camera and, uh, we had a Apple IIe computer. They, you know, there was these, uh, pieces of technology around that I would then begin to use for storytelling. So I made, you know, radio plays on a tape cassette, you know, uh, right. I made movies on the, uh, high, high eight, eight, you know, camera. camera and I made all sorts of stuff on the computer. Like I, what kind of, what, what's your favorite movie you've made as a kid? Um, the cult, it was cult. called the cult. It was about a ex Marine who, uh, you know, had been in a cult and then, and then quit. And then how, years how later, old were you at that time, uh, this was in seventh grade. Um, and you actually like worked with a, you know, you, you had someone at the age of being an ex Marine. No, no, no. Everyone in the movie is a seventh grader. Oh, okay. But in fact, I starred in the movie. You started. I, it was, it was co-directed by my friend Alec and he was the bad guy and I was the good guy. And we drafted our friends into it. Oh, uh, okay. but you know, it, it was an ex-marine who joined, who had quit a cult years before and changed his name, and then they found him and they kill his coworkers and kidnap his wow. girlfriend, his fiance. But for some reason, I didn't like the word fiance. Like I thought it was like an adult word. I, I didn't feel natural saying it. So every time in the movie where you might say the word fiance, what is said instead is soon to be wife. <laughs> soon to be wife. It's like soon to be Miss Michael Jake's hey, name is Jenny. Lay your hands off my soon to be wife. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't want to put on airs and say fiance. Oh, I see. Fiance. Uh, but so, you know, using the the camera was the beginning of my love of film, but that was just one part of my love of storytelling. Um, gotcha. And the other thing that I would say that I definitely spent a lot of time with was being on a computer and figuring out how to make games or experiences. And so I used various way. you know, I... Um, there was a bunch of different sort of authoring software available. We ended up having a Mac when I was a little bit older as a teenager with okay. like HyperCard. And I used HyperCard to kind of draw freehand and then author together. HyperCard is sort of a scripting price. It's very similar to sort of how a- the web works. Or, oh. Yeah, it's like hyperlinking pages. HTML, it. yeah. It was pre-web authoring software. Oh, But you could okay. do a lot of stuff with it. But I was basically using it just to... Do draw, you know, I was trying to copy Mist and like draw first person point of views of a spaceship. So I made huh. this game where you wake up on a spaceship, everybody's dead, and you're walking around trying to decode what happened or try to figure out what happened. And it was that that was 2D drawing essentially, or yeah, yeah. it was huh. 2D uh, drawing with sort of a Mac Paint or sort of you know Microsoft Paint style of of tool set, um, and then linking pages together. And did you already know back then that you're basically doing like kind of a mock-up and you'll probably end up bringing like a, a super talented like 2D artist that to like fill in those things or did you actually try to make the, the final version? I just version? did it. Yeah, I didn't. I don't think at that point I had any sense that there was that I could bring any other resources to right. bear besides me and my, you know, uh, the hours I would put in front of the computer. It's funny because Mist was also was also an inspiration to me when I started with uh, 3D graphics. Sure. Uh, Mist, and there was another game called Ripper, uh, which is like uh, a futuristic kind of retelling of Jack the Ripper, but with oh, like cool. cyberpunk technologies, and they have this like cyberspace thing that was basically like virtual reality today. It's uh-huh. Literally the same thing. Um, 
if you've never seen that game, I mean, the, the graphics and now they look horrible, but back then they were pretty impressive. Yeah. And, I, and my first thing was basically trying to trying to replicate one of those scenes in the game with oh, you know cool. three studio three studio four at the time or whatever. So yeah, I mean, and also the authoring. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like you know you're 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 basically like uh, you were trying to break things and pull them back together in a way, like the 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 modern version of of like you know taking apart taking the phone apart and putting it back together or whatever you know people did when they when when you know in the 50s or i don't know sure like, like TV. building transistor radios yeah exactly yeah and it really always came down to sort of audience reaction right that was what drove me it was like showing something i'd made and delighting someone usually like delighting my mom you know it oh. was like and but everything i was doing was like that for my mom or my sister or something you know was whether it was like telling a joke or setting up a practical joke or i mean it was all about connecting or or manipulating i guess is the bad way to say it but causing a reaction in somebody else and these various tools were kind of all equal in my mind whether it was a radio show or it was a you know movie that was going to be gripping because the soon-to-be wife was kidnapped you know yeah it's like the the ultimate like hey check this out yeah you know like that's pretty much what it is like you know i i played with my cousin uh we would do these like stunt shows in the backyard he was he had this big backyard with a lot you know very kind of lush uh grass parts so we were able to like fall very hard but it would not you know without getting hurt because the grass was very soft and stuff and mm-hmm. we did all these like fight sequences and stuff our parents were not very impressed i'm sure because you know we would hurt each other and for, for their pleasure and they were like ah it's not very cool uh but this is the same kind of thing i guess in terms of like you know you're as a kid you want to uh, you know you want to impress and, yeah. and you want to create re- reaction you know and like uh yeah but there's a better there's actually an added benefit which you're making me realize when you talk about stunts which is if you're doing something that's based in media you can't fuck it up in the delivery, mm. right? Like if if it's, I was never like this the the I, I you know like for instance you tell a joke in front of a crowd crowd of people yeah. it can fall flat you might mess it up you might right. get self conscious you get stage fright you say it wrong you don't quite remember it you fuck it up but if you instead retreat from the crowd of people and then take your time to create a funny scene. And then you bring the crowd of people over and click play on the VCR. You know it's, it's you, going. You know to, you've done your best. Yeah. You, there's nothing more that you can fuck it up in the moment. Right. And I remember very uh, early on playing a movie I'd made to like classmates and having the same sort of thrill. I was also in like plays and drama in, in junior high and high school. Right. But I, you know, it was always nerve wracking. I mean, I enjoyed it to a certain extent, but it was, I didn't really want to be an actor. I didn't want to be on stage. And I have horrible memories of times I forgot lines or things that still yeah. like, haunt me. No, I, I but I, that same that. feeling happens when you show your movie you've made, but you can't fuck it up anymore. Right. And I remember realizing like, this is way better. Yeah. You can basically click play and walk away and you know, they're going <laughs> to, yeah, it's as good as it's going to be. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing right now that you can do uh, to screw it up. Unless the computer breaks and right. the video stops in the middle or something like that. But that's... Yeah. Have you always felt like there was kind of a uh, a deeper uh, allure to telling stories in general than specifically film? Or I've definitely felt that 
from pretty early on that um, that it's worth spending considerable attention on developing technologies. And I, I, I use sort of, I, th- I think I had sort of a realization somewhere in film school, or at least it was almost a, a haunting fear of the future that when you think about the origins of film and you think about um, how much of sort of a sideshow, a novelty that motion pictures were, the different formats they took, the Nickelodeons right. or short subject films that were part of a vaudeville act, you know? Yeah. And so think about yourself being a young creator at that time, uh, an aspiring, you know, storyteller. You might be like, well, vaudeville's where it's at. I want, I'm going to put, I'm going to double down on my career in vaudeville and I'm going to put my best work into this. And, oh, you know, motion pictures, that's a fad. And I had this fear in film school, which was, you know, right at the turn of the millennium, uh, that film, as we understood this, which is obviously the most important cultural you know, medium of our, uh, of today. And it still is. And we're, you know, we're 20 years later, but, um, that technology, interactive storytelling game technology, what games were, were becoming, um, was going to be that it's at this historic opportunity to start telling stories in something that would be the most mature and most important, uh, platform for the next hundred years. And that I was going to miss the boat if I just kind of kept to the traditional uh, filmmaking paradigm. So basically, the way I feel now, but you felt it 30 years ago, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) I felt it, well, 30 years, no, but definitely 18 years. Gotcha. Wow. That's. uh... I remember having a conversation about the vaudeville thing. I was like, you know, because I was in film history classes and I was like, wait, this is happening now. You know, I, I... missed and these things you know I, I was never a gamer i was not actually i'm not very good at computer games i never owned a console i didn't have a nintendo or a sega I and mean, i still have never had a console me neither so they're yeah. not it's it's not a part of my life necessarily as a fan in the way that it was for many many people so it's not like this it's extraordinarily popular you know right. video games and computer games during that time um but the idea of interactivity in storytelling from that first game that I made of, of uh, being marooned in the spaceship to a lot of stuff that I've played with since um, has been just, you know, I, I really felt like it's important and the power of it is still, you know, being unlocked. Right. And, and did you ever finish that game about the spaceship? Uh, I did. I did. I could probably find some way to play it. I have really? like this hypercard stack, which is the name of what. And did you did you let friends play it? Did did you get some feedback? Uh, no. Like there, huh. <laughs> I have almost no one has ever played it, except I showed some people in college, and they're like, "This is cool." Um, <laughs> but you know, one of the problems, and this has happened throughout my career, and it, is that the way that t- computer technology is rapidly advancing, even something as simple as a QuickTime update made projects I made in college uh, suddenly break suddenly not work forever like I have one screenshot playthrough of an interactive story that Hmm. an interactive film I made as sort of a final project in film school right that's a desktop experience and you can't I can't no one can play it there's like no way I could get a machine to play this right now right all I have is this one playthrough even as an example of my work and that's less of a problem now. I think we've had big strides in being able to retain playability. Right. But especially time. with physical media, 
floppy disks and CDs yeah. and CD-ROMs. They just become outdated so fast, and then it's hopeless. Then it's like, oh, well, even my old work I can't show. Mm. Yeah, I feel I feel that you know, the, your pain. I, I I made a website a long time a long time ago uh, with uh, dynamic HTML, which is essentially uh-huh. HTML and JavaScript. That was before Flash even came. Then Flash came and took over, and like suddenly every website was on Flash. And that website just kind of I, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, say it's uh, because of uh, physical media changing. It's mainly because you know I've, I've saved it in some GeoCities type you know. Yeah. Uh, web post and stuff and it just got lost in the you know lost in cyberspace. internet internet graveyard or so yeah cyberspace yeah. and uh, a lot of work went into that and i have nothing to show for it but um you you have at least a walkthrough that's that's significant <laughs> yeah and then you know and you're familiar with that project a little bit because i was i one of the first thing or the first thing i played with in vr when i became interested in that was inspired was basically remaking that interactive film because it was a first person sort of mist like mm. experience on a desktop as a VR project. Um, so that was the the you die in the end. You die in the end, project. right? That's what I thought. So that was the same concept. I mean, the story or yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's really not a game. It's really a film in that it has a kind of three act structure that uh you know unfolds like a short film story yeah and though it's first person and participatory and even the the desktop version of this you click around and you move through this world and you know the layers peel back until you die and you realize sort of the whole thing is clear and that's the movie and you walk away it's not about replayability it's not about challenge or or tricks or or, you know in, in terms of game type structure of oh i had to work to overcome something none of that applies you mean layers of of information yeah gotcha so basically like a a problem being solved or like a mystery unfolding yeah yeah in in a story in a cinema story way you know many short films um short film as opposed to a feature film tends to be about one sort of cathartic moment and so many great short films it's uh reframing of an earlier piece of information or earlier understanding that gives you that uh, twist for lack of a better word and yeah. then that's that's the short film experience now you've you've taken that bite and then you move on it's it's not something you necessarily watch again right but it's achieved its goal to give you that emotion that little bit of uh, shock and reframe and so this really works just like a short film mm-hmm. even though it's interactive and I remember you uh, when once when we pitched one of the ideas to someone you had an interesting way of kind of um setting yourself apart from other interactive experiences or other interactive uh yeah i guess uh, vr uh films in that you describe yourself more as a reactive film rather than a an interactive film yeah i've tried to i've used different sort of terms and explanations at different times but you know the real power I see of interactivity in cinema type experiences um, is not is is really very different from a game, and I don't think I think the place to explore the place I'm interested in exploring when it comes to interactive story is less about decision making, you know, and more about using 
the intelligence of the story. Because if it's interactive, we're talking about you know a computer. There's there's a mind that is a lot, that is that is delivering the story world to you. So right. you use the power of that. Yeah. It's not linear. It's not locked. It's not set in stone to optimize the story beat for a viewer. So that means if someone's moving at a different pace or looking at different things or showing interest in different elements, it's not that we branch the story to, to be a different ending because I don't think people want to have a different ending. We still want to expect a cinema story is about a definitive experience. I want to still be able to talk with you, David, about the, the, the show that we maybe both watched last night on Netflix. And we want to come to talk about, our experiences of it, we don't want to find out that they were totally different because exactly. you had a different ending. So yeah. I don't see the power and sort of the, the the usefulness being branching or different endings or alternative scenes. I think that's sort of a red herring. What mm-hmm. I see is like the intelligence of the story uh, being used to deliver even more seamless, more smooth, more uh, sort of effective to that particular audience member. And gotcha. so the analogy I use a lot is like if you're... Uh, I, I worked once, uh, you know, Halloween season at a haunted house mm-hmm. when I was in high school. And I had, was a wolf man hiding around a corner. And people would turn the corner and I'd scare them. So that's all I did. I, that was my story beat. I just had to scare the people who came around. I bet you were really good at, as the wolf man. <laughs> I lost my voice in like one <laughs> first night and then I had a whole week of it. It was horrible. I can see you. I was like, you know, <laughs> first night I did great. After that I was phoning it in. But, you know, so the, it, I had a simple story beat to deliver. But because I'm a human being, because I have a brain, and because it's not a recording of a wolfman, it's a human being, I couldn't help but tailor my performance to the person. This just happens without even thinking about it. Right. You know, I, the, the, if two small 12-year-old girls come around the corner clutching each other and they're terrified, and one's on the edge of tears, then I'm going to wait a second and let them see me and then be like, boo, and they're going to scream and run away. But if, if, a, if a couple big college kids that are, you know, they've been drinking and they're trying to show how tough they are, then I'm going to behave differently, you know? I'm yeah. going to be uh, moving faster and being louder. I'm going to look up because they're tall instead of look down because they're short. Right. Little things are going to change my performance. So when they get out of this haunted house and they compare notes, it's going to be like, oh, and that wolfman was pretty scary. That's not a divergent experience. They've had the same story beat delivered, but I've used a little bit of, of measuring you know, just with my eyes and my ears to deliver something that's optimized. So that's the, we can't do that in a movie. I can't tailor the way uh, a linear film plays for the audience member. But I can tailor an interactive experience. It can be measuring something, either choices they make, where they look. In VR, we know where you're looking. I mean, that's all you really need to be able to deliver something that's better. And that, it's worth mentioning, that is what we were pitching, which it, it was a bit different than what people are used to in uh, most 360 videos or VR experience that they see in that uh, you were working on a few things that use interactive uh, gaze kind of recognition to drive certain things or to like, let's say, delay a certain action from happening until uh, the head is oriented in a certain direction or sure. exp- or, or expand uh, new parts of the environment um, while the head, you know, while the head turns to a certain direction. When you turn back, suddenly things are different than when they were before. And, you know, that, that was kind of like a, an innovative, your innovation to, or, or your contribution uh, to the kind of like uh, 360 storytelling 
seen as it may and uh and that's i think what what was the uh what was the the thing that you were selling or or the 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 thing that you were trying to introduce into the into this media still are trying totally. i guess yeah yeah um, and it's it's almost sort of embarrassingly simple it's like you know we can talk about it grandly but then when it comes down to it it's like well let's not waste a great moment if they're looking in the wrong direction so uh some people need only a couple visual cues to kind of look over to the to to where the next thing's going to happen other people may need some more uh you know heavy-handed visual cues so but you don't want to give the heavy-handed cue to the person who's moving quickly right you want it to go the as fast as anyone needs it to happen exactly and it just is is equally seamless to someone who's tentatively expecting inspecting every bit and some people are like me who don't need a lot of cues but who like to challenge the the machine and try to see <laughs> right. how long I can like you know what happens if I look over here you weren't expecting that Mr. Storyteller were you um, you're always going to have those in the audience exactly the smart ass ones that are like you know trying to see what if I just stare at the ground now for three minutes let's see if you're <laughs> if you can handle how that. fun is it now <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I am like that I mean I, I definitely do that and it's funny because I think you and I were kind of looking, even before we met, I think one of the, I don't remember exactly the context in which we met. I can, I can probably, I can probably remember it a second, but, um, but I was actually looking at something similar at the same time, like, you know, we, you know, into this exact type of like conditional, you know, uh, conditional 360 experience that, sure. that shifts based on where you, where you look at, um, I wanted to uh, I wanted to go back a bit, kind of roll back into uh, into your the makings of of your artistic kind of experience. So you have always had interest in um, interactive media, if I, if yeah. I remember correctly, and um, yeah, and I think I mean a lot of my first professional opportunities were in that avenue. So I was at a you know traditional film school, but doing a lot of interactive media Which stuff. film school did you go to? I went to USC. USC. And they were developing their interactive media program. I was not in that. That actually wasn't around. That uh, that program wasn't there yet, but a lot of the faculty were there and a lot of the classes were there. And so they were already doing sort of game design in the film school. Um, so I did a lot of that and participated in a lot of that. And one of the things that I did was make this interactive film for a class. That was a, that was a class I took my senior year. Uh, but it was a class of only four people. So it was a real focus. You know, it was not like right. uh, a lot of people were doing this. It was very sort of independent. Um, but, and more, sort of more importantly, I was keeping it on my mind that paying attention to interactivity and thinking about this and letting it inform my projects was going to pay off. Um, but it's all sort of the first professional um, opportunities came from they weren't in traditional film at all. Um, so I ended up working at a little game startup uh, through some connections at college as the as a creative director when there was only three of us um, for several years, uh, during which where we developed these games and um, they were really, they were not video games. They were actually games on DVD. They were trivia and sort of get-together games. They're for oh, groups cool. of people of wildly different ages and experience. It's the kind of thinking you put into making Trivial Pursuit. Right. But it was all using the 
limited but actually quite powerful interactivity on the DVD platform. Hmm. So it kept track of your score. It responded to teams based on who was ahead uh, and who was not. You know, it was a very interactive, it was a very rich experience on your television screen. Um, And we sold, you know, 1.4 million units or something. Uh, Hasbro was our publisher, and we had a whole series of of games and the um, platform was readily available so you know people yeah. didn't have to buy a new yeah that makes sense and so there's a bunch of interesting sort of things that came out of that uh learning experiences for me but one was um this idea of interactivity sort of not being about replayability we had an episodic structure so yeah. you'd play episode one you'd only ever play that once there's not you know huh. a trivial pursuit box has a box of questions and it's just it's they have to make all these questions so that as you shuffle them and you play it maybe 10, 12 times, you get only a few ones that are repeats. Right. Uh, before it starts to be like, ah, I've played this too much and you get mad at the game. Yep. So some of those cards no one ever reads. Mm-hmm. It's content that is wasted, you know, yeah. for, for this illusion of infinite replayability. Yeah. Instead, if you kind of just lean into the fact that that's an illusion and you design a game experience for a group of, you know, four to a hundred people could play this game. Uh, yeah. if, the, if the television screen was big enough, a hundred people could play this game. Um, but the content was, nothing was wasted. All the effort of our writers and our animators, every bit of our funny moments and everything is going to be delivered in the course of one episode. And that's a principle I'm totally into to this day. Like right. I don't yeah. want to have an interactive experience where there's a room that no one ever goes into or only one out of a hundred people go into because that has a real effect on the rest of the project. That's exactly. money spent. That's artist time spent. That's writer time spent. That doesn't. That's not as valuable as where uh, as another place. I feel project. like I feel like it's even it, you know it, it's even more than that. It also affects the audience to know that you as a creator have uh, created a lot of content that they will not be able to experience because once they make a choice, they basically. Uh, are losing on other choices that they could have made. Like I had that experience whenever, you know, in the few times that I've, uh, that I played interactive media, which is every time there's a, actually my best example is there was this book called, you know, the choose your own adventure books. Right. And I would start the book and then I would reach, you know, a, a point of, of branch, basically a branching point. And I, um, and I didn't know which direction to choose. And I remember, having this dread of like, what if I chose the boring path? You know, what if the more interesting path is the one that I decided not to go to? Right. So I would leave my, I, I would basically put my finger in as kind of a bookmark in that branching area so I can always kind of flip back to that the moment the branch that I chose becomes, get is getting a bit boring. And then, you know, three, four pages afterwards, I would hit another branch and I would like yet again do, and I remember ending up, you know, with like my all my, you know, six, seven fingers are like, you know, holding different branches back. So I can always like to allow myself the, you know, <laughs> the ability to like go back in time and, and experience. And I think that that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, sense of, of worry mm-hmm. of like, what if I chose the wrong path or what if I'm getting the, the least interesting kind of version of the story is something that doesn't make the, the content or doesn't make that story a better story. It actually makes it stressful for the audience as opposed to making it interesting Totally, because you're like, well, clearly they've spent just as much energy on the story that I chose, uh, as they did on other stories that I didn't choose. Um, 
and potentially even more energy on the story that I didn't choose because there's no way for me to know. Maybe I'm getting the, you know, maybe I'm getting the the shitty, you know, kind of like side plot that, you know, they kind of threw in there at the last minute because they knew they had to get, you know, give you another option. And someone else is getting to enjoy, you know, the the, the higher budget, the cool you thing. know, yeah. the cool thing. And like, I don't want to stress out about it. This, you know, I've already made a choice by by clicking play in the beginning, you know, and like choosing to spend my next five minutes or 10 minutes or maybe an hour and a half or whatever, you know, how long, however long it's, it's going to end up being on this as opposed to doing a bunch of like, you know, basically an inf- infinite amount of other things that I could be doing at this time. Right. You know, so why am I now at a place where I still need to make choices and still need to like, uh, yeah, I think there's two, I'm, I'm, I totally agree. And I think there's two possible solutions for that. One is the obvious solution is that they're, you don't have any choice for the audience. So right. they can totally be comfortable in the fact that, you know, they're seeing everything. Mm-hmm. But that's not the only choice. There's another option, which is you convince them early on that everything cool will come to them, regardless of what they do. And you can't do that with a choose your adventure book exactly. because it's a dumb medium. Yeah. It's, it's pages. You know, it's not very granular. But in a richly created virtual world... And if you know there's going to be, you know, that you're going to stumble into an action scene with James Bond, no matter which door you open, no matter who you decide to talk to, and you're going to learn the nuclear code, no matter who you talk to, and it's going to be both authentic and impactful, and you're getting the real thing. Yeah. And that's a different fundamental sort of structure than a branching structure that's focused on differing decisions. Exactly. And I think... uh... There's actually a good example that I've that I've seen that I think is still. Be, I don't know if it's already out or something. There's a company called Echo. I don't know if you've heard of them. Mm, don't um, so. They are a, brand, a new branching of this co- other company called Interlude. You probably know about Interlude, right? Uh-huh. So Interlude created this choose your own adventure, like you know, interactive pl- video player, like a YouTube with like you know, a place where you can choose, you know option a b and c and it'll you know branch out and stuff like that echo is basically the same thing just rebranded it um and they're working on a show right now that i wonder if i can talk about because i I, i've seen the behind i've seen like an early version of it it's not out yet but what i really really liked about that one that i saw was that it it's a comedy and it lets you uh make choices but it becomes very quickly the story that the characters are becoming self-aware or like they, they become aware that there is someone controlling um, their choices. So like the, 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 the fact that you can control choices for the characters becomes a part of the part of the plot. And very early on, like you say, um, you realize that your choices are not going to affect the overall plot. Like, it's going to start and end the way it was always meant to happen. But in, in the middle, your choices are only going to affect the flavor of the jokes in every like beat. So for instance, cause you know, for instance, a character, one character comes to another character and says, you know, someone is controlling my, you know, my, my decisions. I, I swear to God here, let, let me, let me prove it to you. You know, like let's, um, let's say, you know, kind of create a situation where I have three options and, and uh, let me write down my choice. You know, he's writing down his choice and then you, and he, he challenges the other character, like, ask me what flavor, uh, you know, banana uh, or, or what color, you know, is my favorite color. Now you see his choice because you're aware. So, you know, he, 
he picked blue or whatever like that. But you now have a choice of like writing blue as, you know, like choosing blue for him or green or yellow. Now, you know that if you choose blue, he's going to, you know, it's going to it's going to kind of ruin his choice his, his way to prove it. But you can choose whether you do blue and then see how he reacts to that or you, you choose uh green or yellow or something like that but that that's just one one example there's another one where like you know either uh slap himself or kiss the other girl or something like that and neither of those things are is going to have a huge effect on the on the remaining plot because it's still part of him trying to convince another person that he's not in control of his own sure. uh choices but for the next few seconds you'll see him reacting to two different you know events that you can control so you're not changing the outcome but you're changing the experience just enough to to have your own flavor of that you know sure um, right which and i do think i mean there there's a tricky uh balance if you're still giving people sort of choices right because if you're gonna have a choice it should be a meaningful choice or you know it, there's a potential of backlash if it's not a meaningful choice um but you don't have to think about interactive media as being driven by choosing doors in a maze or right. driven by, especially for another character. And one of the things that's interesting about VR is that as opposed to other mediums where, you know, a filmic medium, uh, the, the we identify, the viewer identifies as the protagonist in the story. We can't help it. The power of film is to funnel all our sort of disparate points of views in the audience, we could be different ages, we're different, uh, you know, uh, nationalities, we have different life experiences, we have different levels of intelligence, we have different sense of humor, yet we all get in the room and we funnel ourselves down into this protagonist uh, who is, you know, oh, it's a little girl being bullied at school and we're, we, we're her being bullied in that opening scene of the movie and it's, you know, it's emotional and so it's a, that's what film does right. is funnel. Mm -hmm. uh, with VR... We don't have that strong identification with another character in virtual reality because we've brought ourselves into the movie. Yeah. We've brought ourselves into the place. Um, so, and, and it's impossible to leave yourself behind in the way that, that filmic language um, uh, succeeds at. So that means, for instance, if you were to use your example of, of choosing what someone else does, that falls apart in VR. Yeah. Why am I controlling that person? Yeah, like you I'm are here, your own. You have you, know? you have a yeah. presence exactly, which is an opportunity for a different kind of 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 uh, participation in a story world. Yeah, um, that kind of is a little. It's seamless because it's not even a question. I am here, like I'm, like you did in Extravaganza, which is uh, you know, sure uh, your your VR experience, fully animated CG experience that's on transport. Is it on anything else? Um, it's on some sort of platform in Japan that we just made that deal. Oh, congrats. Um, thanks. And it's at a couple of VR cinemas in Switzerland and France, and maybe on some VR uh, mechanized chairs, which is a developing platform. Oh, nice. Um, that contract's not that. signed yet. But so it's out, <laughs> out there, you know. Um, it's not available for any non-headset view. Uh, hmm. the, some VR you can put on YouTube 360 right, and it exactly. works great. exactly. Extravaganza falls flat on a YouTube 360 because it's so dependent on your own body. Exactly, and, you want to and look the transformations and, that yeah. your body take that uh, that takes place in your body. Um, because in Extravaganza, uh, you are a puppet in this sort of 
crazy VR puppet show. And then there's humans, actually live action characters watching you. And part of the storytelling is the character you were playing in every, excuse me, at any given moment. And then how that changes and how you interact with your scenes and how that would differ from what you would do if you weren't a puppet. If you were in control, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't choose any of these things. And that's part yeah. of the tension of the, of the, of the movie. And I really like it. And what I wanted to, I think, uh, what I feel like is, is a good kind of discussion point or point to put, to point out, uh, is, uh, is the, the journey you took to making extravaganza, uh, and I was part of that journey. You came to me early on with uh, "You Die at the End." Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a, that was the first project I remember you talking. Uh, I remember us talking about. Yeah, it was a while ago. Um, and uh, you know, you can probably say that you know, kind of ex- expand on it more than I can. But uh, the journey to Extravaganza was a journey of like making something, making making something doable within your resources and not right. being not not being dependent on external uh financiers and stuff like that that you knew or after a while after trying for for a while you realize is going to just take too long and potentially just like waste you know a lot of your time so you kind of like if it keep yeah reframing the plan to be achievable yeah like in that period um i had gotten excited about vr and I knew other people were excited about VR, but I didn't really know what kind of money I would be able to raise. So I had a series of, of progressively smaller projects that I wrote, developed, and prototyped to some extent, whether that was a sort of a VR animatic or sort of an animated version or a, you know, a storyboard or whatever it was. But some significant production work went into a series of different prototypes, but all that just ended up being too big a project definitely for me to fund myself and then furthermore to even to raise money to do. Uh, and so what I ended up with was kind of looking at the tools that me and a couple collaborators had been using to, to create those prototypes and saying, well, what were we using? An animation platform that has VR tools, um, you know, Cinema what do we 4D, have? Cinema 4D, yeah. you know, and, and what do we have access to? 360 cameras are difficult and expensive and stitching is hard. Well, how can we do it? I, I still wanted a live action component, but I wanted to shoot that with a, with a cinema camera instead um, that I could, you know, borrow from a DP friend, you know. So it was what we had available and the resources we had to make a project in just a couple months, uh, specifically my animation partner, Frank Stringini. Uh, well, it's like, we'd already made these prototypes. Let's just do a finished project that, that doesn't require reshooting that it, you know, it's, it's the same level of quality as a prototype. You know, we polished it up and did better job with the animation for sure than the prototype versions of live action projects, but it was using the tools that we were already using on what had previously just been pitches. Yeah. I mean, I find it very inspiring. I mean, the first, even the, the prototypes that you showed me of the, of those longer experiences or, or not necessarily longer, but the more hard to produce sure. evident, you know, uh, ultimately, um, were very impressive. You know, some of them looked amazing as is. And, you know, I was, I was very impressed by the fact that those were things that you did knowing that they're just for prototyping and for pitching and, uh, you know, it went to great lengths and you used your spare time. How did you, um, how did you manage that? Like in terms of, I'm just thinking practically, sure. you know, you have to survive, you have to pay the bills, you have other jobs. Uh, we didn't even talk about it, but you've created a lot of uh, uh, entertainment for, you know, um, 
you've uh, you've created screens for or backgrounds for um what do you call those uh you know for concerts for concerts yeah. on ships on uh yeah i've done quite a bit of uh content for musicals and theater that's on cruise ships cruise ships yeah yeah well and that was kind of the project i'll tell you you know I, the super short story of the different types of stuff i did but after the games i made an indie the uh, game startup i made an indie film that was self-funded and you know beg bar and steal a, a feature no budget film. yeah it was an What's indie it feature suspension suspension uh you can see it on amazon uh prime rental it used to be on netflix but it's not right now Indie, like self-financed, yeah. or did you get financing from? It self-financed with like you know an ex-boss put some money in, and my aunt and uncle, and my parents, and you know, but okay. it was but it was shoestring, yeah. you know, uh, and a lot of donated time and and people working at reduced rates. But we, it was you know a feature film that was a great experience. Didn't you know set the world on fire once we, but we managed to get it distributed, uh, and it came out. Um, and uh, and was out. It was on iTunes for a long time. It was on Netflix. Now it's like only on Netflix on DVD. It was streaming okay. for a long time. And now it's only streaming on Amazon. But um, so I did that, and that basically led to kind of my career in post production. So I started uh, editing music videos, and I did that for years. Uh, did a lot of music video editorial on. I did. I edited videos for Beyonce and Katy Perry. Really, and a ton of. Uh, hip hop and Akon and uh, a little Wayne. That's and where Drake. you got your mansion in the hills from. That, now I get it. Now I <laughs> exactly. understand where <laughs> it was all young money, cash money. Um, yeah, so the, I mean, that was also very indie. It was basically like kind of the post production skills I learned on the feature. Mm -hmm. And it was right at a time when the red cameras were coming out. And um, so I was able to kind of get good, and music video budgets were dropping. I was able to get good clients and get good jobs. Right. Um, because I I was at the forefront of kind of uh, my knowledge was extremely up to date. How are we going to do? How are we going to cut and and deliver um, projects that are shot digitally? You know, it, so I was I was not missing any information out there in the industry. I was just as yes. my knowledge was just as relevant as anybody else because of that time. So I did post production for and that turned into commercials as well. So I cut music videos and commercials, and then I was also creating both as an editor and then eventually as a director content for pop concerts. So a lot of music industry stuff, right? Like big pop concert screens. Um, I did a Madonna tour. Um, I was just one of the vendors doing screens for that tour, but then I um, was working at a bunch of different companies that were doing content for uh, also Beyonce tours and Stevie wonder and just tons of tours. Uh, but that took up a lot of time. It's hard to do independent projects when you're doing lots of, overlapping little projects yeah you know something short like a music video it's like they just stack up you gotta do like 30 in a year you know it's, it gets yeah. busy no, it's... And, and then you and then you started doing all those the the um uh cruises was, yeah, was so that something that you did in the same time or i basically uh i became i i from the screen content for Concerts, yeah, that became um, projects. I was getting opportunities for um, theater screens, theater uh, screens in non-music performance but theatrical shows, yeah. Um, and those projects were um, a little bit longer term. They were, you know, they, they took a little bit longer. There were a few months instead of you know three weeks, 
And um, do you get to work on a cruise ship when you do? <laughs> I did. I did go on multiple cruise ships with my producing partner. Nice. To for like final rehearsals and an implementation of the show. And but basically doing those projects for for just a couple of years, that window of time that opened up more time in my schedule. And that was a time where I so I um, could basically create more side projects. Yeah. Thinking about the next step. And that was something that I would have had a hard time doing when I was more of a full time music video editor. So was that the thing that kinda of led into that that allowed you the time to work on You Die in the End and the yeah. other projects? And and it was there was a confluence of events because, you know, there was a moment in VR history where, you know, Facebook bought Oculus and everyone kind of perked right. up their ears and I I did as well. I saw a lot of relevance to it. You bought Oculus? No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I also purchased Oculus. No, but, you know, I I was like, this is a great fit for me. There's the immersion that, uh, you know, I'd been working in a sort of a 360 environment for years doing theater and this music performance. Screens are all around the audience. Right. Uh, You know, it's a 3D, it's a 360 environmental design kind of project. The way you think about your audience and the way you think about the point of view and the attention of the audience is much more similar similar to VR than it is to how you compose a shot for traditional film. Yeah. So I thought, okay, this is great. And, uh, you know, I'll dig this old project out of a drawer and start prototyping it. And so that my interest happened to align with an opportunity, uh, where I had a little bit of space in my schedule. Um, and also, uh, a little more stability financially than when I was just a straight, editing and out of curiosity at that time uh was vr the only like you you say it was kind of a combination of opportunity and timing and like the technology was there and your experience from you know doing uh um i would call it uh different you know alternate media type projects Mm -hmm. kind of put you in in that headspace to begin with and you know you were like oh i'm already doing this i'm just you know it's a different media but it's it's the same kind of mindset were you or do you still have other technologies that you've been wi- wishing, you know, to explore that you're working at a time that you had to put aside and then you, you know, in order to focus more on VR? Um, I've certainly developed or written projects for VR technology that's not available now. Um, more, you know, mm-hmm. writing projects that are really intended for volumetric, uh, right. live action uh, realism, but volumetric you know, six degrees of freedom. Yeah, you mean vol- volumetric is in um, not three sixty, you know, dome like experiences, but experiences that you can move around and, and explore from different yeah. angles based on where you stand. You know, yeah, six degrees of freedom. Yeah, writing projects for sort of first person experience without having to, without being concerned that I don't know how to implement them. Right. Or that it's it seems far fetched that they're even implementable because it's all just a you know a matter of time. So I'm not you know designing projects that have to require hoverboards or time travel. You know I'm so that might be far fetched. Not yet. Design yeah, <laughs> but I'm designing projects that um, have a greater level of fidelity, a greater level of of interactivity, a more powerful behind the scenes uh, engine 
than is currently available. And that's yeah. not what I put all my time in because I'm also trying to develop projects to pitch like right now that actually could be done. Exactly. But yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about those things and have been from the beginning of this VR. Some of that's out of ignorance. I don't know what we can't do until I get a little bit into it. It's like, oh, shit, this is going to... There's no way I could do this. And then it goes in the drawer. How long did you work on, let's say there's, um, I know, the two 360 video uh, projects that have not yet happened before you decided to do Extravaganza? Like, would you say, what was your... It was a year to 18 months. A year to 18 months. Yeah. Before you were like, okay, this is going to happen, but in order for this to happen... Or in the meanwhile, I have to I have to put something out there. Yeah. And did you expect Extravaganza to be to to be sold and and to be uh, distributed the way it has and and to get the the type of? Probably not. It's hard to remember, to be honest. You know, when you like make a gamble and it pays off, it's kind of like you just sort of move on to the next thing. Um, so I don't I don't fully know what my mindset was at that time. I definitely was very focused on excuse me, Tribeca Film Festival's deadline because it was the last, you know, I'd been spending that whole year trying to kind of raise money for a project thinking like, and we'll do it and we'll enter it in Tribeca. And it's only Tribeca. I mean, Tribeca is an amazing festival, but it's also the last in the entry deadline, you know, season. Yeah. Sundance is in the summer and by the, you know, and, and Tribeca that year, it was like a December, early December deadline. So it was like, well, surely I could get something done by December, you know? I see. Uh, so then as the time ticked away, it was like, well, this isn't going to happen and this isn't going to happen. Well, <coughs> pardon me, um, you know, g- given that we have three months left, what should we do? And, and then that it was, was like, that was let's the... do Extravaganza. Yeah. And Extravaganza well, at that point had, was a, just an idea jotted down on a notebook from, you know, earlier, just maybe a month or two earlier. So it was a kernel of an idea that I'd had earlier, but then it was kind of like, okay, if we have to do something that's largely animated and it fits this certain production requirements, let me just look at what's applicable to that. And I was like, well, that one's, that's a good idea. And it wasn't called extravaganza, but it was like, okay, it was actually called anime sex bot coupon originally. And I was like, did you tell me that? I'm trying to think. No, I think by the time it's funny. Cause my experience was like, I was I was in touch with you about both both of the first projects, you know, both yeah. bigger projects and we put down we put together a budget and we had it all broken down into into tasks and how long it would take and everything. And then I didn't hear from you in a while and then you were like, "Can I borrow your computer to render something on it?" <laughs> you know, and I was like, "What is it that you're doing?" It's like something different. <laughs> it's just I think it was already called extravaganza at that point. Yeah. And yeah, it was definitely like, you know, kind of a, to me, at least from my, from my vantage point, it felt like, um, you know, this not afterthought, but this kind of hurried project all put together last minute. And, uh, but you know, you would never, I don't think you, you would be able to tell watching the final thing that it was kind of done in such a short amount of time. And I've, I've seen a version you know, not the last version. I've seen a version where the the ending was different. So you had mm-hmm. even time to. I think you you. That's probably what you submitted to to uh, Trebeka, and right. then you and then you changed the the ending, and you added that you know twist at the end that wasn't there in the beginning. Um, and we re-recorded all the the voices. Right. Yeah. Well. You changed. So there were some pretty big sure. changes that improved it, and just thank God that you know there was the opportunity to to make some changes, not in a quality level because it wasn't about how we chose to render or how we designed characters, but there was some storytelling problems that were able to be solved, I think, largely 
or largely solved, solved to be, uh, well enough by just re-recording dialogue yeah. and then adding a different ending. And they kind of achieved different. There were those changes were for different reasons, but um, you know, with film festivals, they're used to looking at work in progress. Yes, you know, they're, they're used to getting submissions that aren't done. So Tribeca was great about that process. I was able to sort of resubmit. They were already interested in it from the initial version, but then, you know, I, we had weeks between that deadline and then when we, uh, I was like, well, will you take a look at this one? I think we've ironed out some problems. I'm, I'm laughing because when you say weeks, I'm like, that's nothing. And you're like, weeks is like, you know, there's <laughs> so much you can do yeah. in weeks. That's well, we only the difference, recording. Between you and me, it's like, <laughs> it's, uh, to me, weeks is like, oh, that's like, I get nothing done. And if it's not months or years, it's like, you know, right. I'm not even going to start, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and it's, it's short, you know, the shorter something is just <laughs> the more opportunity you have to either change it dramatically without taking forever or finish it. Um, yeah. No. And I, th- I mean, I admire that about you. And I think that's, um, that's the, the one thing I kind of want to make sure people take away from, from this podcast and I, I'm not sure they have uh, or they will um, based on our conversation because it's very philosophical to, <laughs> to a greater point. And then we just briefly discussed your kind of uh, uh, recent pro- projects and process. And I, I think that's just by hearing how much you've done in the last, you know, several years in terms of, you know, just sheer, you know, volume of work and uh, and self-propelled i think gives a gives a certain idea but i'm i'm kind of curious um um to hear a little bit about what your what your day is like and i know like i'm you know as a friend and so as someone who's kind of in touch with you here and there i I know that you're always on the move you always have a, a project that you're working on or several projects in different stages and you've recently had a baby and and moved into a new house and are in the process of getting even another house for your parents. I, mean, I don't know if you want to go in there, but like I just I'm just saying I know there's a lot of projects that you're involved with. Some you know professional, but also how do you manage your time? Like how do you get how do you stay sane and and don't forget to you know don't forget where you left your keys. You know sure. Like, I always put my keys in a little woven basket next to the door. That is really helpful. They never go anywhere else. That um, is the... <laughs> but truth be told, you know, routine does help. Um, I'm really like a creature of routine. I really like... I work better in the mornings. So I try to get up early and go to bed early, um, which luckily actually works really well with my baby, my nine-month-old daughter's schedule because she sleeps a lot of hours now, which is great, um, but gets up early. Um you know, it's, I think it's hard to give like a short or a pat answer about like time management, but I'll tell you that I, um, am a very scheduled person. I schedule blocks of time. If I have something I'm nervous about or, uh, that I have to do, I wrote a big sort of email memo on a project this morning and I was, didn't know I was nervous about it. So I put a big block in my calendar that was like, for that task and I put it first thing in the day because I can't do it once it gets to be 3 or 4 p.m. important stuff I fail at I've got to leave logistics and short things and technical type stuff to later in the day because I can't waste for me the really valuable mornings on that kind of stuff I can't put my I think of 
mindset, I really have two kinds of tasks and maybe everybody does, or maybe, um, this is just how I think of it, but there's the kind of sort of humid, uh, juicy, creative, blurry phase of the day. And then there's this sort of dry, precise, technical problem solving phase of the day or, or type of task, let's say. Right. And, you know, first thing after I wake up, I still have that like humidity. I still have that blurriness, that connectivity. And I shouldn't use that valuable time in the morning before that humidity evaporates and I'm dry again. <laughs> I can't put technical, uh, logistical sort of procedural tasks, even if I want to do them then. I shouldn't waste that humidity. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So if I have to write, if I have to problem solve in a way that, that is not just sort of budgeting or scheduling, right. I enjoy budgeting and scheduling. That's part of the problem is I like the dry technical tasks. Yeah, me too. So and I it's... might want to get, I might wake up and I, that's the first thing I want to tackle. But I've learned that I can't because later in the day, I can get still get excited about solving that problem. But later right. in the day, I can't sit down to a blank page or sit down to a tricky memo that's going to take some finesse to kind of prove my point or, or build consensus with people. Yeah. Uh, communication. It's like or, uh, you know. I'm working now on this, like on, on, a, on a lot of shots that have the similar type of effect, but there's the look, look dev that is the kind of humid part where it's like, sure. you know, it's like throwing out all these ideas and like kind of finessing it and, and getting, getting something that looks good. And I guess it's true. Like you want to do that first. And then once you got that done, then it's all about copy and paste and like getting all, you know, through all the rest of the 30 shots that it's going to go into. But it's it's all about. Sure. So it's like do look dev in the morning and copy paste uh, and like, you know, implementation type things later in the day. It makes sense. And that's just me because I'm a morning person. You know, it might be that for somebody else, I think, you know, for people who are in that situation of balancing a lot of different types of tasks or a lot of different hats yeah. in their career or in their, you know, the... Um, in their project, you know, identify what time of the day is your like shining time and use it for the stuff that counts. Um, and for me, I, I'm all about mornings, afternoons are really hard for me. And so if it's something I know how to begin, do it in the afternoon. If it's a task that I can open up and just start, that's got to be afternoon. If it's going to take some, you don't know what you're going to do with it block out some time and do it in the morning or the, right. the, the magic hour, whatever that happens to be for you. Maybe that's after dinner, after a cup of coffee, if you're a night owl. Right. Um, but just don't waste that time on things that you can do with sort of a different mindset. So, and I'll, I have a question about like your, you know, being a, being a storyteller, filmmaker, whatever it is, you know, however you describe yourself, uh, basically being a person who, who makes your own projects and kind of like it's like basically building the staircase on which you you walk up essentially you know you, you're not um you're not relying on a, on a predefined or pre-existing kind of path nobody's uh offering you your next projects per se um do you ever reach points where you feel like you don't have enough of a motivation or, or, or you're like at a loss because you don't have your next project? Or have you ever been in this situation where you're just kind of dry suddenly and you're like, well, I don't know what, uh, where, where, where do I draw the next project from or, or what my next step is? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've had 
you know, many periods where I've really struggled to figure out like what's the valuable next step um, or what's the job to take. I've been in a in a very fortunate position of of having offers for projects in a lot of cases. Sometimes the hardest thing is um, like saying to yourself, oh, saying to or just deciding to turn down something because it opens up the time you need to develop something else. So that's hard. I mean, you got to make an income, you got to pay your rent. And so, you know, you're talking to me at a time where I'm feeling like very optimistic, partially because the chain of events that started with extravaganza, it has been um, a lot of projects. I'm because of extravaganza, you know, I've been in a situation where I've been, I I get called for things, you know, Uh, people have reached out to me. And so it's not, um, so again, it's almost hard to remember how difficult it was in the right before playing, getting excited about VR, thinking about what I was going to do with my career, how to kind of tie the threads of a bunch of random stuff, right. or what I needed to kind of focus on. Um, so yeah, I, I'm almost constantly somewhat panicked about not the next step, but two steps from now. Yeah. And that's partially my personality. It's partially my choices about how my work is going. But, um, you know, right now I feel like, uh, I've been able to be working in VR, getting offers and getting projects as well as pitching my own, um, that are paying the rent and are paying my income. And there's sort of a unity for the first time in a long time of like, ah, what I'm being paid for also feels like the right thing for me to be focused on right now. Certainly hasn't always been the case. In fact, it's almost never been the case in my past. Uh, where there's always been sort of a disconnect between like, okay, what I'm getting paid for is is great, I got to get paid, but it's not exactly maybe the right thing for this or that reason, or it's maybe not where my interest is, or I'd really right. like to be doing that. And it doesn't propel difficult. you towards the future that you kind of hope for yourself. It kind of keeps you at the same place in a way. or Totally, or, or, or just, uh, yeah, or for whatever reason, just not the thing that I'm most excited about. Um, and I guess it kind of leads to to where I wanted kind of to conclude uh, when it comes to uh, people in our field, which is, I guess, the audience, presumably the target audience of this podcast is people in the in the post industry, people who are like you and me, or like came from, you know, post production type jobs, whether it's visual effects or edit editors or you know sound people or whatever. Um, that uh, that want to expand or want to explore, you know, uh, other technologically kind of advanced uh, uh, areas of, of entertainment and uh, or want to create or want to become creators and uh, create their own content is um, is like what kind of tips or what kind of uh, little piece of advice you think you can you can give them or, or something that you feel like you what was helpful to you or or kind of keeps you afloat. Sure. I feel like I do have a really good answer for that, or hopefully it's a good answer. And I don't know why it's sort of at the top of my brain, but I'll, I'll, the, the thing that has helped me power through the doubt on a particular project or a particular task, like, is this worth it right now? There's an infinite amount of other things I could be spending my time on right now that could be the ticket to, um, what I either what I want to be doing or success for this particular project or getting it into this festival or getting, getting attention in this way. 
um, is that is to focus on process, not result. And I think this is a lesson I really learned as an editor that I have been, I'm a better editor than I am a writer, but I've been trying to be a better writer for 20 years now. Uh, And writing for me is, is sort of plagued by self doubt. I do a lot of writing and I've written a lot and I've written a lot of projects for, um, I've written a lot of projects or developed them that, that I've actually made and been happy with. Uh, but when I'm writing, you know, well, I'll tell you this, what turned me into a better editor was trust in a process. I developed a way that I would approach specifically music videos. Cause that was the thing that I did the most. Oh, this is the time where I, find shots that I like. And then part of my brain, the meta part would be like, Oh, th- you know, this shot would connect really well with this shot or they, he, that part that Ethan is thinking ahead to how it would work in the final project. Yes. That's a d- bad thought. <laughs> the other Ethan would say, shut up. What I'm doing now is just looking for shots. I like, and I'm not thinking about anything. It's I'm just a viewer. And I'm like, that's nice. That's cool. That I'm not categorizing. I'm not thinking that's cool because it's a useful bit of performance or that's cool because the, uh, you know, the lights better or that I don't worry about it. This is the time where I find things I like. And then the next phase, I'll start combining some things that I like in this particular way. And I had a really structured process and all of the steps depended on being fully engaged in the goal at that moment. And never was the goal make a great music video. That's the goal at the very end when you start combining the work that you've done. Right. And so trusting that the process is, you know, well, what if it doesn't work? It, that doesn't matter if, you know, the, the process here is, is I can define my goal and the goal is not to be a brilliant artist. The goal is not to make a brilliant piece. The goal is find shots I like in the footage. Right. And that's a goal I can succeed at. And that's a goal I can say, I'm going to do that for all morning or all day. You know, I can schedule that. I can nail it. And then I can move on to the next step. So I got really good at trusting that my process was going to lead to a good music video. And so as a writer, I try to do the same thing. I find it a lot harder as a writer, but it's like, I'm not going to try to write a brilliant script. I'm not going to try to write a brilliant character. To this morning, I am just working on this particular thing. I'm thinking about environment or I'm writing something about, you know, something finite that I can succeed at and don't get distracted in some this this final goal which is to create the greatest movie ever made and instead just you know uh be able to define what you're doing that morning and put time into it i think that's a great advice and i will definitely keep it in mind because i definitely get myself distracted and and uh stop myself short you know because i feel like i'm not getting you know the you know the best result made and you know when I, when I work so I think it's it's brilliant uh, thank you and also um, where can people find you on social media if you you know um, sure want to follow you and and see what's new in Ethan world yeah I have uh, a lot of my work and clips and uh, stuff is at um, ethanshaftel.com um, and every once in a while I tweet on at uh, <laughs> eshaftel E. Shaftel, at uh, e. Shaftel. At E. Shaftel. Um, and yeah, and stuff on Vimeo. Basically, you can find me if you start with Ethan Shaftel. And uh, your recent work, Extravaganza, is available on Transport and maybe on a few new... Uh... Yeah, it's on Transport for Samsung VR and HTC Vive headsets. And it's also out there at sort of location-based places here and there. Um, but... Uh, 
hopefully it'll be a little bit more able to be viewed uh, soon. Soon. All right. Cool. Anything else that you've been working on recently that's uh, coming out or available um, somewhere? I'm just starting a project that's really cool. It's an animated. This I was hired for uh, an animated VR pilot for uh, for a cool animation company that's doing getting into VR and um, just uh, starting work with the team, and it's going to be really funny. You're directing it? Yep. Nice. Congratulations. Thanks very much. Um, and... It's not announced yet. I can't say too much, but we're still casting and doing character design but it's uh gonna be very funny and um some really interesting storytelling techniques i'm excited to to work with and uh apart from the other projects that we kind of briefly mentioned here more than briefly um any other projects personal projects that you're developing right now um i have uh the i'm pitching some projects both uh, sort of a funny sci-fi VR piece, but also a, a horror piece that are developed but not made. And those are kind of um, the things I'm most excited about. Um, but hopefully, like this animated pilot, will open some doors to share that piece more widely with uh, people who are interested in making immersive entertainment. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ethan. Um, Thanks for having me. Tremendous pleasure, and uh, maybe we'll have you back some point and uh, talk about new stuff that sounds good. Don't even exist yet. Always willing. Awesome. Cool. This was the second episode of the Post Post Podcast. If you want to be notified when new episodes are released, uh, feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or subscribe to the SoundCloud and. Apple Podcast feed. I hope to see you next week. Uh, we're going to have uh, a really nice episode as well. And uh, that's it. I'm David Gidali, and this is the Post Post Podcast. Post Post.